Good morning to those of you in the United States. Good afternoon to those of you in Europe. I'm Robin Camarada. I'm the program director for the American Council on Germany. Uh, I am delighted to be able to moderate this conversation with two experts on European security and transatlantic relations. This discussion is part of a more extensive series called In Focus, Russia's War in Vietnam, and it's held in partnership with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. When Russian troops invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022, Vladimir Putin thought his forces would take Kyiv and bring down the government within days. A year later, the war rages on. Ukraine has courageously defended itself against Russia, but there is no end in sight. Today, we are joined by two familiar faces in this series, Ambassador John Kornblum and Dr. Liana Fix. Ambassador Kornblum served as the U.S. Ambassador to Germany and is regarded as an expert in U.S.-European politics, economic relations, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. Welcome, Ambassador Kornblum. Good morning. Thank you very much. Dr. Liana Fix is a fellow at the European Council for Foreign Relations based in Washington, D.C. Her work focuses on Russia, Eastern Europe, European security, arms control, and German foreign policy. Willkommen, Dr. Fix. Thanks so much. So, Dr. Fix, I'd like to start with you. Um, we're one, more than one year into this conflict. Um, how is the war unfolding? What do you participate in the weeks and the months ahead? Thanks so much. Let me try to give a first overview and, and outlook on what we have to expect. Um, I would raise three points that I would look out for in the next coming months. Um, the first point is that there was this general assumption from the last year, this general feeling that this war has become a stalemate. That after one year, no side is advancing, that we have a war of attrition. There are a lot of comparisons to World War I. So the question is, are we really in World War I with this war one year later? And I would argue that this is not the case because the front line has been very dynamic throughout the last um, throughout the last 12 months. And we often think from the perception of where we are now. So we had the winter behind us where everyone was preparing the defensive lines that were preparing for counter offensives. Um, but in principle, the last year has shown quite remarkable success for Ukraine. So we had three waves of Ukrainian, three or perhaps four waves of Ukrainian successes who were able to recapture 50% of their overall territory that was occupied by Russia. So it is still a very dynamic battlefield, and we are not yet in a World War I-style trench warfare. The second is we will probably not be there also for the coming months, because in the coming months, we are seeing already a small Russian counteroffensive where they focus a lot on the city of Bakhmut, but also on, others, other, on other frontline states. Um, and we will see a Ukrainian counteroffensive in the next month. And we also see that the West is preparing and equipping Ukraine for exactly this counteroffensive. So the discussion that we've seen, especially in the transatlantic relationship between Germany and the United States, about the deliveries of battle tanks for Ukraine was a part of this next move of the um, the idea to equip Ukraine to do one more successful counteroffensive before times might get more difficult. And that's my third point. What do we have to expect from this year? This year is perhaps the best chance that Ukraine has to liberate part of its own territory, because next year is going to be a much more difficult year geopolitically. I mean, first of all, we have a new Congress where a minority of Republicans, but still a minority of Republicans are more skeptical towards Ukraine aid. So we can't expect the same huge amounts of aid for Ukraine. And we will also enter US election season next year. Um, so it is really this year that it's a chance for Ukraine to further liberate territory. And then once the chips have fallen after this counteroffensive that we expect from Ukraine in spring, early summer, 
at that point, we can see where we are and also whether there's any signs from um, Moscow that they are willing to negotiate on serious terms that are at least acceptable for Ukraine to come to the negotiation table. But we also might have the other scenario, which is that a continuous war is actually in Vladimir Putin's interest to keep himself in power. So counteroffensives this year and then two options a continuous fighting because Russia needs to keep this war going. We've seen how relaxed the Russian president has been in his latest speech. He seems to be comfortable with the situation. Or a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, which forces Russia to come to the negotiation table. I'm more skeptical about this outlook. I think we have to prepare ourselves for Russia willing to fight this war for years to come. And uh, Ambassador, do you have a different take on this situation? Well, no, I think I agree more or less. I think uh, Liana is perhaps a little bit more optimistic about Russian abilities to fight a long war than I would be. I think that the sanctions have not yet taken fully hold. And uh, when they do, it, the situation may look differently. But I think it's also useful to look at this from a much broader standpoint, the so-called geopolitical standpoint. And I have partially because of my long background in Berlin, <clears throat> I have noticed interesting similarities between this confrontation and the one in 1948 when the Russians started the Berlin blockade. Mm. This was at a time when, the, in 1948, was at a time when the West was building down from World War II. The Americans had literally taken most of their troops out of Europe, had hardly 250,000 left in Europe at that point. There was a strong peace settled sentiment in the United States, and uh, the uh, Europeans were disorganized and not able to meet any kind of Soviet threat. Stalin thought that he could easily eradicate Berlin and have the whole eastern zone to himself. And had it not been for the Berlin airlift, which was a perfect example of sort of American ingenuity without any strategy attached to it. There was no strategy attached to it other than to save the Western sectors of Berlin. This airlift changed everything. It blocked Russia. It electrified the United States. It turned Germany, transformed Germany from a defeated enemy into a, a, a courageous ally and led to the foundation of NATO. Now, it's difficult to draw complete parallels, and I won't do it. But the fact is, <clears throat> there are some similarities. Mm -hmm. Europe was totally unprepared for this, as is coming out now, especially in Germany. The German military could hardly defend against a kindergarten class, let alone the Russian army. Uh, Europe it was on a peace trip of a, of a major uh, uh, dimensions. The United States was not thinking very much about Europe. It was China that was in their minds. But somehow, and I'm, I, I guess it's partially the personality of, of uh, Joseph Biden, when this happened, the United States jumped in with both feet, head, shoulders, everything, and has now helped build the, when I have to say, tremendously capable and dedicated Ukrainian people into a, a force which is, in fact, pushing the Russians back. Now, the question is, your question is a very good one. Is this going to be a stagnant situation or not? I don't think it'll be stagnant, but that's not the, really the question. The question is, what do we do over the longer term with this defeated Russia, which is the last major empire in Europe, which is collapsing very badly, uh, if we look at the Central Asians, we look at the Caucasus, leave aside the countries in Eastern Europe who are, who are now mentioned uh, members of NATO, we will see that nobody really wants to be part of this empire anymore. And we know that there are parts of Russia which are not European-Russian parts, but Asian or Turkic parts of Russia who don't want to be part of that Russia anymore either. And so we're going to have on our hands two very difficult authoritarian opponents. One of them, China, which has a world-class economy, but a almost medieval political system. 
the other, which does have a medieval political system and does not have a world-class economy, but controls some major portion of the Earth's surface, surface. And so we will be, be forced to deal with them under whatever conditions we are. There are a number of peace project, peace proposals floating around at the moment. I've read all of them, of course, including, believe it or not, one from the Chinese, but others from, from traditional diplomats who are trying to apply their experience from the past on, on the present and the future. And I think that that's the last point I will make, that this is not the time for peace plans at the moment. And in fact, it is not the time to try and uh, dig up old models which were successful in the past, but which probably don't fit the model that we're dealing with now. The final point is that we are already in a new quote, world order, a term I don't really like, but it does define what's going on in the world. <clears throat> the, uh, the digital revolution, uh, artificial intelligence, social networks, high-speed data networks, integrated supply chains, has totally transformed the map of the world. And uh, this map is now in the, in the process of being redrawn, and nobody really knows how it's going to turn out. But most of the considerations that we had in the past are no longer valid. And so it's not only, and this is very similar also to the 1948 example. The, uh, the, the United States was hoping that Europe would simply somehow rise from the ashes and take care of itself. And there was a very, very difficult debate inside the US government about whether we should join NATO or not, or whether we should help organize NATO. The Russians helped us decide this debate, and the Russians have helped us again to decide the debate. But that doesn't mean that we can go back to 1948 and apply the lessons there, because we're in this new digitally integrated world in which China is a major, major player, in which Europe is a sagging and not very active player. And so the United States is faced with a number of challenges, which we have really not ever thought about before. And so it's going to be a very difficult time. I agree completely with Liana. This is going to be a very dynamic time, not only on the, in the battlefield in Ukraine, but also in the, in the minds of political leaders, public opinion, social networks, TikTok, as long as it's still available, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we really are in uncharted waters. We really don't know how our world is going to be affected by the new uh, factors which are taking hold right now. Liana, do you want to make a comment on that? I think I can very much agree with everything. One more aspect that I think one should look out for in the next coming weeks and months <clears throat> is also the role of China. Um, and I want to underline how important that is because we've seen in the last couple of weeks some interesting developments. We've seen U.S. intelligence that has published um, uh, or made public that China is considering lethal weapon deliveries to, to Russia. We've seen China coming forward with a so-called peace position. Um, and that's something where China tries to which multiple aims at the same time to stay close to Russia and to keep Russia as a junior partner in that relationship to prevent that Russia collapses in the in this war um, but at the same time also to position itself globally and with Europeans as a kind of peace mediator although the Chinese position paper was heavily leaning towards Russia that is what China has on its mind right now, and it uses Ukraine and the conflict in Ukraine in a way to advance its own interest towards the United States and Europe. So I think the course of this war will also depend on how China positions itself in the next weeks and months. And what type of role will the United States play in that relationship between China, Russia, and Ukraine? I think it has the crucial role because from a Washington perspective, the relationship with China is not necessarily tied to Ukraine. So there's this idea that there's the European theater where we deal with Russia, and then there's the Asian theater where we deal with China and Taiwan. But from a Chinese perspective, it is more of a global theater which can be used to advance interests. Um, and um, from the perspective of the United States to balance um, how these two powers interact with each other and to make sure that even though 
China might stay close at Russia's side, might remain um, Russia's biggest big brother, Russia's biggest partner there, that it does not cross the line of really supporting Russia's war, which is so obviously against, um, as John said, against every rule that have been set up since 1945. Um, so I think the United States has quite a difficult role in balancing these relationships and in balancing, especially in the future, the priorities that they place on Europe and the priorities that they place on the Asian theater. Ambassador, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, that's, I agree completely. And uh, one can go even further and note the difference between China and, and Russia of the Cold War days is that China is totally integrated in the new modern digital economy. In fact, uh, I think virtually every smartphone that we use in America or in Europe is made in China. And China is profits from that, but it's also uh, can be uh, wounded by that. And so we have a certain um, leverage on Chinese behavior. I don't want to overdo it, but a certain leverage on Chinese behavior because of their fear which of what is, by the way, happening, that American producers are moving production into Southeast Asia and into Europe and to India, I mean. But also that, that they would be uh, then um, under the, uh, the danger of, of Western sanctions, not just Americans, but also uh, uh, European sanctions, which, as we know, have, have in fact really hit the Russian economy. This is a subject which... Um, even big experts can disagree on whether Russia is really going to be hurt by these sanctions or not. We'll wait and see. I'm far from being able to, to predict that. Mm -hmm. But China really doesn't want to be, become a part of this equation either. So, but again, we have the trying to use history as a as a precedent. We have a similar situation where the United States wants nothing more than to withdraw from the world. And if you look at, at what Trump is saying, but also uh, Florida Governor DeSantis, who clearly is going to run for president at some point along the way, he said yesterday the United States had no interest in Ukraine. No. He's trying to play up the uh, isolationist sentiment in the United States. But the fact is that the Congress, with the exception of, the, of a smaller group of really dedicated right-wingers in Congress. The Republicans and the Democrats agree almost completely on what should be done in Ukraine. So there are going to be some very, very interesting congressional debates on this also. So as I said before, I'll, I'll repeat it because I think it's the main point. We are in fact in a total reordering of the world. And when Leanna says the United States is going to have to decide how important Europe is for it, well, there is no Europe. Where there is, is a territory which is occupied by countries, many, most of which are very close to us for philosophical and family reasons. And Europe now is totally disorganized, doesn't know what to do about Russia or China. And it will be again, 75 years later, the role of the United States to try to put it back together. Are we able to do that? We will, we will wait and see, I'm not sure, I, think I could, Maybe in our discussion, if one wants to hear some criticism of American policy, I can give you some. But the fact is that we have jumped in with both feet, spent hundreds of billions of dollars on this, and in so doing, are helping define the world which is coming ahead. And China has seen this. China is trying its best. We should mention also the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which, if you believe what was written, China brokered. So China is going to do its best but it cannot compete with what the United States is putting together. And we have already put together a different kind of alliance in Southeast Asia. And the British-Australian-American submarine agreement is just one small chunk of that. So we seem to be doing better at, at this, but it's still, I agree completely, the jury is out. Excuse Steve for that uh, comparison, but the jury is out. And uh, this is going to be these the next two or three years are going to be very difficult and very uh, confrontational. And for Europe, they're going to be existential. And I think that it's quite clear from what's going on in Europe that they're not ready to meet this existential challenge. 
Uh, interesting that you would bring up uh, the GOP, particularly Ron DeSantis. We have a question from one of our viewers asking, um, if by 2024 the U.S. support for Ukraine is lessened or worst case effectively ends, can we reliably expect the balance of NATO and or Europe to pick up the slack and keep the support for Europe? Well, answer first, the answer is no, because there is no slack to be picked up. There, there are no European forces. There's no European arms industry. There's no European warehouses which can, can uh, support Ukraine. What is going to happen is a major debate. And actually, we should welcome this debate because it's, it's, we, are, we are at the moment, as was the case in the late 40s, we had the debate, we are redefining the world. We had the debate then, which one of the big products of that debate was the Marshall Plan. And there are several issues which are on the, on the table now. Rebuilding Ukraine is one of them. And one of them, maybe I'll speak to in more detail later, um, how to deal with Russian war crimes. Mm. We had already created the precedent in 1948 with the Nuremberg Tribunal. And we seem, the United States seems to be hesitant to do the same thing now. And so uh, there's a lot that's going to come, which we cannot define and can only speculate about. Liana? I think it's, I mean, I'm perhaps a little bit more optimistic about Europe's performance. I mean, I've, I think they've really um, done unprecedented moves in this war so far. I mean, the way how sanctions have been used as economic warfare, the way how for the first time there was a European budget by which European member states get, get reimbursed for weapon deliveries, which means that, you know, through two corners, Europe is um, providing directly weapons to Ukraine. So there is some, um, there's some advancement. European states have agreed to increase their defense spending. Um, most states are doing that, I mean, much more forcefully than they have promised in the past. Um, so there is this geopolitical moment but I would agree with John that it will not be sufficient to take responsibility for Europe's security, and it will also not be sufficient to replace the support that the United States is giving. If we look at the overall numbers, the United States is ahead. It is the greatest contributor. And I mean, of course, we have to put this into perspective of GDP. So if we compare it with the GDP of the European Union, European Union is actually overall, um, and if we count the UK to it, it's not too far behind the United States. Um, so it's not entirely equal, equal on support, but um, on financial and also humanitarian support, the EU is also doing, doing a lot. Um, but even this kind of support that the EU and Europe with the UK is contributing now requires a lot of attention, requires a lot of efforts from Europeans. So if they would have to double the support to make up, at least double the support to make up for what the United States is providing, that would be very difficult and impossible to fulfill, um, not least because, as John mentioned, um, just the weapon stock, stocks are not there in Europe. And Europe's defense industrial complex um, has not uh, moved up to, um, and has not risen to the occasion so far. Europe is producing very much at a peacetime speed. Um, which is a problem already now for Ukraine, because Ukraine has a huge ammunition problem, um, but it will remain a problem in the future. And it also means that for any, for any kind of mission that Europeans want to embark on themselves, I mean, let's say in addition to Ukraine, we have a crisis that breaks out in the Western Balkans. Europeans don't have um, the... <clears throat> armies that are compatible enough with each other and don't have the capabilities to pull off a small mission even on their own, a small military or combat mission. And that's something which needs to change, but we have this kind of paradox, um, and Natalie Tocci has written great things about it, that at the same time that Europeans are increasing their defense spending, finally, Germany has committed to 2%. This money is not spent in a coordinated way to make Europe stronger, but it's sort of very much spent on national priorities contributing to NATO's budget, but not in advancing the capabilities of Europe to do something on their own. Um, and I think that's a problem that we have. Um, so at the same time, we have the strength in Europe, we have this geopolitical moment, awakening to Russia, great cooperation with the United States, transatlanticism and the West is back. But how sustainable is that really 
if we might see changes in US domestic policy and Europeans will remain on their own. And on the sustainability question, I'm also much more skeptical. So is there a possibility of building an army at the European level to help in this defense? It doesn't even have to be an European army. I mean, that's a discussion that we have for such a long time, but it's so difficult because, again, the European Union is not um, a nation state as the United States. It's, um, and so it is much more difficult to decide who would lead a European army. It would be sufficient if the 27 European armies that we have within the European Union would be able to coordinate in a way and would be able to be compatible with each other that allows the European Union to do some missions um, autonomously. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a point where we are not. It's a point, it's a project which would take at least a decade, if not more, if we start now immediately to spend the money in a coordinated way. And again, it's a little bit disappointing to see that despite, again, the rise in defense spending, the commitment to NATO, um, the parallel thought that you know we can commit to NATO, but we can also strengthen Europe's ability to act on its own is not as strong as it should be. Ambassador, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, well, I agree with that, Naomi. Um, I'm not as optimistic as Leonard. This is going to be decades, not a decade. Uh, Europe, uh, this is my thesis, which I've written about. Europe is suffering from a form of PTSD. Mm. A, a traumatic shock after, after all, uh, a, a century which did not exactly turn out very well until the United States got involved again. And uh, there's, I, I'm a, 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 I have long experience in this, going back to the 1960s even, and uh, there is simply not the will and the conceptual and emotional ability for Europeans to do what Liana has just talked about. That's the big problem. 25 or more years ago, the United States made a proposal, which I worked on, to um, merge the defense capabilities of NATO and the European Union under a structure which still exists in NATO, by the way, where Europe could do its own regional projects, but would also be part of a joint Atlantic strategic view. This was blocked in the last minute by the French, as usual. And the Germans didn't agree, disagree with them. And so we've wasted really 30 years with, with how, many, how many acronyms has the European security process had, five or six at least. And uh, there's been no progress whatsoever. And in fact, I do read the German papers very carefully. And this morning, if you read the statements of, of Frau Herger, who is the civilian advocate of the Bundeswehr, the German army, she says that it's in the worst shape it's ever been in. So this is not just a question of more resources, it's a question of mentality. Mm. And unfortunately, and I don't mean this as a criticism, Europe is still burdened by the traumas of the Second World War and the First World War, probably. And it, it just does not have the psychological wherewithal to put these kind of things together. That's why NATO is so important. And that's why I continue to believe that the best step forward would not be a European army, which was already tried in 1954 and failed, but to merge the defense capabilities and the security concepts, which are often better in Europe than in the United States, to say that very bluntly, into NATO and have NATO be the transatlantic security organization, which it was meant to be. But there is such a deep, deep belief in Europe that it has to be separate from America, while at the same time depending on America, that I don't believe that this is going to be possible anytime in the near future. Is it PTSD or just comfort? For all this time, there's not been war in Europe. Now that it's on their doorsteps, is it they're finally realizing that they should have done something? Well, to be, to be uh, uh, positive about it, I think it is PTSD. And I, I've, I went through this in great detail in the 1990s in the, in the Bosnian conflict, in which I was the first the deputy American negotiator and then the, the special envoy to the Balkans. We could not convince the Europeans to put together a clear and understandable uh, strategy. And so we just did it by ourselves. 
and um, and the um, there are people who are still mad at me for the way that we pushed our way through. But if we hadn't done it, there wouldn't have been a Dayton agreement. And so there is there is a it's hard to talk about politics in these terms. I understand that, but there is a a psychological break in Europe which seems to continue to to be present, which makes the United States the, the really indispensable central European power. We are a European power in the sense that we keep the European structure together. Now, the question is, uh, if I'll just take one more minute, Donald Trump came around and said, these Europeans aren't paying their way. Let's make America great again. Let's get out. Well, of course, without our strong engagement in Europe, America is only half as great as he thinks it is. Uh, Europe and America have already become one zone of culture, of values, of economic cooperation, and of defense. And the United States without Europe would be much, much poorer for it. We would find ourselves probably facing a Europe which was going in a sort of a neutralized, pacifist direction. We would find ourselves alone in the world fighting against the authoritarian forces. And so there are things that need to be done better in Europe, but for them, for America, we should really realize that this, these allies that we have are, an, are a central foundation of our security and our role in the world. Should there be a future um, time when the United States is less engaged in, with Europe? Is this an opportunity for Germany to rise to the occasion, or do you believe they'll still be the reluctant leader that they have been uh liana yeah i think it's i mean germany is a very interesting case because obviously germany has gotten a lot of the blame especially during the Trump years um and i think it's also an interesting case for exactly the question is it comfort or is it um a historical trauma that we see with the europeans because uh, i mean reminding ourselves how the cold war ended and where we were at that time it was not only germany that was um reducing the size of its military that thought that we live in a new age you know of um of opportunities of economic interdependence it was a tendency that many others followed um but the question really is at which point did germany but also other countries sort of miss the science at which point did they misread the international mm -hmm. system which was moving towards another direction and they stayed sort of with their mindset in a 90s um mindset although in the 90s the balkans war was certainly um uh was certainly something where german military military engagement um was hotly debated too um so at some point um germans always prefer to argue well you know our european neighbors would not feel comfortable if germany would become the new military power in europe i think at some point in history this really became more of a fig leaf as an argument it became a fig leaf for ma not making the difficult choices that increased engagement and increase in defense budget would mean so if you increase the defense budget where do you cut the budget for social issues which are very important and take a large part of germany's budget um, and looking back, if we look at the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the war in eastern Ukraine, that should have been the signal for Germany to do a turnaround and to do the turnaround that we've seen now three days after the outbreak of the war with Olaf Scholz's um, Seidenwender speech. We had a little bit of that after 2014. We had speeches, we had a slight increase in Germany's defense budget, but it really lacked this kind of resolve of understanding that we are in a different world right now. And so Germany basically had a lost decade since 2014 or lost eight years because it could have prepared better for where we are now and it didn't and that's why it had to turn around um, at the beginning of this war and to do it all at the same time it had to reduce its dependence on russian gas which it continued after 2014 it had to announce an increase of defense spending it had to invest more in the eastern flank it had to start support ukraine so it was more for my perception more of an emergency break that germany had to do after the outbreak of the war than sort of this kind of ambitious awakening of the sleeping giant that many hope to see in this in these German announcements. And if we look at what the ambition of German policymakers is, it is quite explicit. It is an ambition 
to move from military restraint to military power. That's very clear. I mean, German politicians, leaders talk about Germany's army becoming the leading um, army in Europe, the cornerstone for conventional defense and so on. But at the same time, there is a lack of urgency and it helps to explain that if one thinks that the speech with these big announcements was given three days after Russia's invasion. So at that time, the feeling was, well, Russia is at the gates. It's sort of pushing against, it will occupy Ukraine, will push against Poland as well to all. After Ukraine was so successful, paradoxically, the urgency declined. And so we see a lack of implementation in Germany and a lack of urgency in really going forward with, with what has been promised. So in principle, Germany has the potential to really step in European security. And that's sort of the stated ambition to become a security guarantor in Europe. But the, um, the implementation of that is at the moment really lacking. Um, and that, I mean, understandably, raises a lot of concerns with Germany's partners who say, oh, it is again one of the situations where we placed our hopes on Germany, but did not get the expected results. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't belong to those who say, well, this is all rhetoric and Germany never wants to come back. I mean, there is uh, really an ambition to come back to military power to protect Europe, but um, the speed is not what, especially the United States, wants to see given all the challenges they have with China and Asia. Ambassador, any anything to comment? Yeah, well, uh, even the even the term Germany is going to come back to leadership is is a term from the past. The fact is that if you look at Europe through a different optic, the social political optic, optic Germany has been a major leader and a major world power for probably 60 years. The Europe that we have today has been molded on the desires of Germany. And you just need to go to Spain or Italy or Greece and ask them what they think about Germany. And you will see that these countries feel that Germany has pushed them into an economic direction which they simply can't sustain, for example. Or uh, at the time when people were criticizing Germany for not doing more in 1914 after the Russians took Crimea, don't forget that Germany almost alone in Europe with Sweden and a couple of other countries made a commitment to take in a million or more Syrian refugees, which it did and which it has successfully integrated. I know some people in Berlin who work with refugees and they, they believe that it's amazing how the integration has come forward. Or uh, in, uh, night in 2000, when was it, 16, after Fukushima, the so-called Energiewende, which was a much bigger Wende than, than Schultz has ever proposed for the military, caused Germany to push forward faster on, on um, closing down nuclear reactors and depending on alternatives. And Germany is one of the leading producers of alternatives at the moment. But it has not been able to build a power grid in order to absorb all the alternative energy that it's producing and it sells a lot of it to its European neighbors. Mm. So the fact is Germany is the leader of Europe. It has been for at least since the early 1960s or at least after Germany joined NATO. But it is not the leader that people want it to be. They want People are focusing on military security, which is simply not in the cards. And I respect that. I mean, Germany had, shall we say, a slightly different first half of the 20th century and they were their behavior wasn't exactly exemplary. That is why I believe that Europe will not ever have a, a, a serious security capacity until it is reintegrated into NATO. The Europeans have weakened NATO over the past 20 years by trying to have a competing clubhouse, as we would say. They say it's not competing, but of course it's competing. And uh, it's competing for the, for the hearts and the minds of the people, if not for the weapons. And it works only when the United States is there as a safety net to make sure that it can work. So it's, it would be much better if we would simply understand that that's the, the situation in which Europe was left in 1945 <clears throat> and simply merge the two things together in NATO. We set up, I myself designed it, if I may say so, a structure with a deputy uh, NATO commander who is a European Union representative. He is still there. That job still exists. 
with joint task force, which the European Union could activate on its own if it wished to, using American equipment. And this, of course, depends upon agreement and on implementation, but the fact is the structures are there. And Europe is working against NATO. I'll say this very bluntly. Europe is working against NATO by trying to set up competing structures. And when we face a crisis such as Ukraine, we see what these competing structures bring, nothing. So this is, this is a small but extremely important part of this equation, which I was talking about, of the new world order, in which Germany is, in fact, if you take away the military security, the leading European country, I sometimes argue that Germany has become the third most important country in the world because it is, in fact, defining Europe's role in this new world order. But this European order works only when it's part of a larger Western world order. And that's the, that's the thing that we are still sometimes debating. Russia has done horrible things in Ukraine, but it has also stimulated the West the same way it did with the Berlin blockade in 1948. And let's hope that the stimulation is, leads to progress as it did in 1948. So going back to the actual war, is there a possibility for a victory for Ukraine? And what would that look like? Yeah. Wants to go first. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go. Well, I think there's a possibility, but I don't think there's a probability. The, the word victory is one which one, one can't define at the moment. Uh, President Zelensky has carried out a heroic leadership role together with the leaders of the, of the Ukrainian military forces and the Ukrainian population. And uh, he has put Ukraine in a position where it could perhaps dream of having a maximum solution, that is getting Russia out of Ukraine completely. And nobody wants to tell them that that might not be possible. And they don't want to tell themselves that it might not be possible. And we should stick with that because we shouldn't tell them they can't do something which they are certain they can. But in the end, the question of what is victory is going to be the big open question. Uh, these peace proposals come flattering down on us every day. They're, they're coming from Germany, from America, from China, from France, everywhere. But nobody really knows. What we do know are some of the basics that we will not give up. We will not give up our democratic systems, not allow Ukraine to be made a non-democratic country. We will not give up the principles which we negotiated with Russia in the 1990s. We will not give up the unity of NATO, et cetera, et cetera. And we will not give up the right of Ukraine, of Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan and other countries to choose their own orientation and their own alliances. These are basic, you want to call them red lines. They're not really red lines, but they're political realities, which no American or German or French or British leader could ever give up on. We cannot give up on the Helsinki Final Act, which is in fact the best description of modern civil society that we can imagine. If you take all that as givens, then you already have a very difficult negotiation, leaving aside even the military situation. So it's very difficult to come out for, I would, wouldn't even hazard a guess as to what a peace process should be right now. The peace process right now is making sure that Ukraine doesn't, is not overwhelmed by Russia. But that's going to be a very major thing, and it's going to not just be a question of Ukraine and Russia, is really in many ways going to be redefining the world as we did in 1948. Are we ready to do that? I don't think so. I don't think the United States is ready to do that. But it's something which is going to keep pushing its way in on Western leaders uh, very strongly over the next six months or so. I agree with Yana completely. This next year is going to be very de decisive, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. Liana? To, to add to that, I think the most realistic victory that Ukraine certainly has is to push Russia as close as possible to the pre back to the pre-invasion line. So I think that's something which they can achieve this year. And if we look at the map in Ukraine, 
um, we see that one of the major aims of Russia has been the establishment of this land bridge to Crimea, which means to connect the south and the east, which have been settled before. So the really best case scenario for Ukraine probably this year is to break up this land bridge again and to come back to a situation where Russian forces are isolated in the east and in the south. And I think we should also, I mean, despite the obvious fact that a full victory would, of course, be the restoration of Ukraine's legal 1991 border, we should not underestimate what kind of victory such a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive this year would be. I mean, it would basically mean that Ukraine has pushed back Russia to more than 50% of what it has occupied before. I mean, it's a huge success given where we have been one year, um, uh, one, uh, one year before. So I think we have to make sure that although Ukraine, for Ukraine, it's very important to link victory to the legal borders, and it is also to us, we should also make sure for our own societies, for, for the public support for this war, what kind of interim successes and victories Ukraine has. And it would be a, a significant interim victory if Ukraine were to push Russia back to lines that are really close to where Russia was when the invasion started, because it would basically mean all what Russia has done is futile, and it would sort of bring um, an idea of, or hopefully bring a sense of futility to Russia's war efforts, possibly also in the Russian public, possibly also among Russian soldiers, if they end up after this summer in a situation which is not, I mean, entirely different to where they've been in 2014. And perhaps this um, weapon to bring in a sense of utility in the German, uh, in the German, in the Russian, into the Russian army and into the Russian leadership is one of the aims that one could try to pursue. So widening the aperture a little bit, what about the Eastern European countries? Uh, we have a question here um, from one of our viewers asking, with the exception of Hungary, they have strong motivations to defend themselves against Russia. What are or what will be their capabilities? Well, they have the, shall we say, the psychological commitment. And by the way, I'm not sure exactly how to interpret it, but Mr. Urban of Hungary made a statement yesterday which seemed to have him join the other Eastern European countries in opposition to Russia, so we'll see. We should also add that we have obtained two new members of NATO, Sweden and Finland. Sweden is in a very difficult discussion with Turkey because of Sweden's liberal uh, asylum rules. Uh, but uh, the fact is that these two very classic neutral countries decided that they couldn't trust their neutrality anymore and decided to join NATO. That was a very almost historic decision that they made. Um, and so uh, this is, the Eastern Europeans are going to play a very important role. At the same time, we shouldn't forget, and when you look at American policy, I hope somebody will start pointing this out to some people, that we have committed ourselves to the defense of at least three nations, which are, you know, according to military theory, indefensible, the Baltic states. Mm. They are small countries with small populations, flat territory on the Russian border, the Russians could take them over very rapidly. That would be an Article 5. And NATO's Article 5 says that every single piece of NATO territory is defended by every single other NATO country. And President Biden, not two weeks ago, made a statement saying, I want to, to say we have a sacred commitment to defend every inch of NATO territory. That's a very big commitment he made. Because I'm, I don't know how well we could defend the Baltic states, to be honest about it. And that means also in the question of the outcome of the, the Ukrainian war, it's very difficult now to define what kind of borders would exist. But if I may come back, go back to a personal historic experience, when we took over the negotiations of the Baltic and the Bosnian situation, there had been at least three pl peace plans before us. 
And they all started with first trying to define the borders between the various ethnic groups there. We decided that was a hopeless task. And so we turned it around. We, just, we defined the principles. We defined the foundations. And the very last thing, I won't forget these days, that we um, were able to agree, sometimes going 24 hours without sleep, <clears throat> were the borders of the various ethnic, which divided the various ethnic groups in Bosnia. So I think we should just not talk about borders, to tell you the truth. Ukraine has a, has a goal, as the Bosniaks did in, in, in Dayton in 1995. We should not try and rob them of their goals. But that's why putting forward peace plans right now is just not very useful, because there's nobody in this world who could define what the borders of Ukraine would be, except for the maximum outcome which would be victory everywhere, including Crimea. Mm. Uh, don't forget the Ukrainians have not, even though the, even the United States has given them some, some gentle coaxing not to uh, raise their hopes too much about Crimea. The Ukrainians have not given up on the idea of retaking Crimea. So to, to talk about the borders right now is to talk about a, a, a uh, frozen situation. But one can talk about all the other things, and we should at least be thinking about that rather than thinking about peace plans, which are still keep coming up, Germany is filled with them. Uh, the Germans are always very good at theory, and so they're doing they're all kinds of peace plans being put forward. But the fact is, none of them will have any value until we see what the political and psychological situation of the Russians and the Ukrainians is at some point in the future. Hmm. Liana, do you have a comment on the Eastern European countries? Sada, we should also not forget to look at the other countries in the former post-Soviet countries, although I think that's really a concept which has become outdated. I mean, we've seen what has happened in Georgia in the last two weeks, Georgia and the South Caucasus, where um, the uh, the ruling party, Georgian Dream, which is led behind the scenes by the grey eminence of Dizina Ivanishvili, an oligarch who has made his fortune in Russia um, and is still um, yeah, leading the country, really the reform president, the democratic reform president of Georgia is in prison. And we've seen that um, the Georgian Green, the ruling Georgian party, has tried to introduce a law which would mirror Russia's laws about foreign agents and which suddenly takes a turn away from integration into Euro-Atlantic structures um, and uh, comes closer to Russia. And we've seen the very brave Georgian population going onto the streets, protesting this law and saying with flags of the European Union, this is not what we see for us in our future. And we also have to think about what options can we offer this uh, small, powerful, pro-European, pro-Atlantic population in the middle of the South Caucasus in a very difficult position that they find themselves in because they have been the, the first victim of Russia's aggressiveness and of its imperial policy in 2008 in the Russian-Georgian war, which we often tend to forget. So what can we offer those countries? And the same applies to Moldova, which is a small country which sees Russian troops um, and has seen separatism after the end of the Soviet Union, where Russia has a lot of leverage as a country which is not, I mean, very um, uh, instable in its political foundations, how can we make sure that our focus is not only on Ukraine, but also on the other um, on the other neighbors which um, are playing the same role today as Poland and the Baltic states played after the end of the Soviet Union. Um, those countries who want to join the West want to become member of the European Union and to have any kind of security relationship with other countries. And I think probably one of the biggest mistakes that have been done is um, if we look back to the NATO Bucharest summit in 2008, where the promise was given to Ukraine and Georgia that one day they will become members of NATO. The mistake that has been done there is that there has been a promise given without a time frame for some point in the future. But this promise has not been backed up by any support for these countries. So it has put these countries at risk of Russian provocation, because it's obviously something that Russia would not want to see, but it has not helped them with any kind of substantial security help. So I think that's a policy choice which um, 
which which we should be careful not to replicate but at the same time thinking creatively about other ways how we can integrate Moldova, Georgia and obviously Ukraine closer into EU Atlantic structures. Um, maybe to add one point on this. Um, I was the foreign policy advisor to the Georgian Dream campaign in 2012. And they're uh, and they are they are still the democratic alternative to Shakashvili, by the way. He is not a democratic leader. Uh, and they had great hopes. The great hopes have even before the Russian threat, I mean the um, the 2008 war was already over then. The great hopes were because of the internal political structures in these countries. Armenia has had numerous governments trying to deal with their situation while the Russians have kept the conflict with uh, Azerbaijan on a, on a, shall we say, a low burger. And so you're right, Liana is 100% right. These are countries which wish to be part of the West but who are geographically disadvantaged, so we call it that way. And secondly, they do not have this quite the society, the social development, which would allow them. When we took in the, 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 the nations of Central Europe and the Baltic states to NATO and the European Union, there have been some hiccups. We're not happy with the political situation in Hungary or the political situation in Poland, for example. But these are essentially European countries with European societies and they have the integration has worked actually quite well. Uh, would the same be the case for these countries in the Caucasus or even more so the countries in Central Asia? A compromise was made by bringing them all into the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which was designed to be this great pan-European structure, which helped everybody cooperate with each other. It has many strong points, but it is not fulfilled the hope of being a pan-European security structure. So it's going to be very difficult, and I agree completely. We could we could also add, in case we want to increase the complexity of the equation, add Turkey to the to the to the mixture. Turkey is one of the early members of NATO. Turkey is a unbelievably productive, dynamic country with a backward political system. It's just suffered a horrible earthquake catastrophe. Turkey is not going to be very much in the mood of compromise. Mm. One of the reasons that Sweden is probably not going to join NATO in July is because it has had a very liberal asylum policy for Kurdish dissidents from Turkey, and this causes the Turks immense heartburn. So the, the world is it's like one of these... Um, science fiction movies where you're dealing on several layers of reality at the same time. The world is dealing with several levels of reality from the traditional big policy power relationships to the developments inside societies, to the new whole new digital world that we're talking about, to the uh, climate change uh, um, effects which are being felt in both America and Europe in great in more and more in North America right now, I think, than in Europe. But Europe is also suffering from drought and forest fires, and Lord knows what, that they never had before. Hmm. So this is, even to describe the current situation, goes almost beyond the ability of human abilities. Luckily, we have CBT bot artificial intelligence, which is telling us now how to write symphonies and get through law school. And uh, maybe somebody with, with some of this software will uh, come up with some clearer definition of what's going on. But right now, it really is a very big mess. And it's going to be that way. It, and then we can pick out, talk about Europe, we can talk about Eastern Europe, we can talk about the Republicans, we can pick out all kinds of individual elements. But the fact is that the overall picture is one of maximum instability and, of course, because of that maximum danger. And that's why Ukraine is important for us, because it is the place where the West can make clear that we are not going to allow the, the hopeful rules-based system that we established in 1997-98 to be overcome by what is, in, in effect, the last empire unless you consider China to be an empire also, which some people do. The last of the traditional empires still functioning on this earth, which calls itself the Russian Republic. 
So there's a difficult road ahead for us uh, with no real end in sight. I wish there was a better way to end this discussion. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't quite seem that way. Uh, but thank you both for your comments on the one year anniversary of the war. Uh, I'm sure we will see each other again and continue this series. So on behalf of the American Council on Germany and for the Nashville World Affairs Council, or, sorry, the Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee Council, please. the Tennessee World Affairs Council, I want to thank you both for joining me today. Um, and I look forward to the next discussion. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure.